So if you have been reading along in the Gospel of Mark on our reading plan, although any plan through the Gospel of Mark is a good one, you should be all the way through the end of chapter 2. If you are behind, it means you're going to kick off on Monday on chapter 3. So what chapter are you starting on Monday? What chapter are you starting on Monday? All right, we're set. So there was a great techno- there was a, there is a technology that was invented soon after World War II that has saved millions of lives and in fact can make human beings operate flawlessly. That was the problem is that there are certain industries where there is zero margin for mistake, but we all make mistakes. So how could you do something to keep that from ever happening? The situation was, as they were looking for a replacement for the B-2 bomber, they were making planes larger and larger. Boeing had gotten a contract and had assembled this massive plane. It was sleek, it was cutting edge, it was the latest in technology. And all the reporters show up on the day for the plane to be launched. And as the plane takes off, it turns straight up in the air and comes straight back down and crashes right on the runway to the shock and the horror of all those watching. When tried to explain what happened, they said, although the plane had been tested many times previous, the pilots slipped into an old habit. You see, on old planes, to make the flaps go down, that part of the wing in the back that, if you've been on a plane, makes that noise when you're taking off, In the old days, that had to be cranked manually on the inside by someone. But the new plane did it with a switch on the inside. And so the pilot was supposed to reach and flip the switch to make the flaps go back down. But in the pressure of the moment, they reverted to an old habit and left the flaps in place, assuming another engineer would do it. And in doing so, the plane crashed. And from that time on, Boeing began to institute a technology that I have seen with my own very eyes, very advanced, has saved more lives than your smartphone, has done more to make the world a safer place, and that is the checklist. Oh yes, the same thing that you make when you go shopping, uh, a little list to make sure that when you leave the store, you leave with everything you're supposed to. Because how many of us, when you say... I don't need a checklist. I'm a guy. I know what I need. You go to the store, you walk through the whole thing, and then as you sit down coming back home, it's almost like the idea is stored in your backside. Because as you sit down, it goes straight back up to the brain. Oh my gosh, I forgot. And it comes right back to you, doesn't it? And so any guy who's smart begins to say, before you go, what do you need to do? Write a list. And so even when I flew with Norton, and Norton Van Deventer was a member of this church for many years, probably the the longest-serving pilot I know of in the low felt, and although he was a master mechanic and had been flying for an extremely long time, if you go with him to fly to Harare, he would go to the plane and say, number one, check the fuel cap. Is it on? Check. And then he would go and say, are the plugs uh, out of the air intakes on the wings? Check. And he would go through, and if you've ever been a pilot, you would know that every pilot uses a checklist. And if you know pilots that don't use a checklist, well, you probably don't because they don't last very long. You see, the checklist takes us, it says that because I am not perfect, I need to go back and make sure that I am covering everything. And the danger becomes in fields where you are so smart and so trained and so familiar that you would no longer go back and check 
And that is where the danger lies. Not in our lack of understanding, but in our confidence and in our brilliance, we assume that we don't need to be double-checked. And perhaps in Christianity, we need a checklist. Because we are so familiar with the gospel. We already know the story of Jesus. I already know what happens on Easter. Surprise, he comes back from the dead. Like, I already know the whole thing. Uh, And because I know the whole thing, I don't need to read along, at least not that passionately. I mean, I, I pretty much already know this stuff. I've been going to Sunday school since I was a kid. But just like a Boeing pilot can wreck a plane... So a Christian who is uh, familiar with the Bible could take a lax approach to reading it and in doing so accidentally swallow both dangerous errors, misguided beliefs, unnecessary shame, misguided guilt, and lose out on opportunities that God has for them because they say, I already know that story. And so it is the Christian's job every year to continuously go back to the gospel again and again and again to say, how does my life shaped? How is my life being shaped by Jesus? What does it mean to look like him? What does it mean to follow after him? What does it mean that I am his child? So we're going to look today specifically at Mark chapter 2. And if you've been reading this week, if you haven't already signed up, you can sign up for our podcast, all the links including the names of the app you would need, are all available on this site. So udo.world slash listen. Even if you know nothing about your smartphone, all the information you need is right there to follow along. So this is the text. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum and people heard that he had come home, so his home has moved uh, to, the, to Capernaum from Nazareth, And it says, there gathered such a large crowd that there was no room left, not even outside the house. Just get your head around that for a second. Like, not even outside the house. How full do you have to be before you have to say the outside is full? Okay, the church could be full. But how full would we have to be at a church where we would eventually say, even the yard of the church is no good? Like, this place is packed People are pushing in, people are shoving. It is more crowded than Bite Bridge, more than a Zubco bus. This place is full. He, and he preached the word to them. There are many gathered in that place. Some are there because they want to be healed, they want something from Jesus. Some are there because they want to hear about all this teaching that he has to offer. But many are there, as the text will show us, because they want to keep an eye on things. They're Pharisees and scribes. And when we we say scribes, we mean Bible scholars of the day. They are there not because they need anything, and certainly it's repentance is not what we need, but we need to make sure that these young people don't get up to no good. After all, Jesus is in his 30s, and if you take the leadership of Zimbabwe seriously, that means that 30 is still a youth, isn't it? Jesus is unmarried, which means at your church, he would go to youth group, wouldn't he? Yeah. And the adults sit in the back of youth group to make sure that these young people don't mess up the whole thing. And there's Jesus. Now, some men came, bringing him a paralyzed, and it's carried by four people. And here's what they do. Since they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd... They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging a hole through it and lowering down the man, the mat the man 
was lying on. No matter how many times you read this, it is just hard to imagine this happening in a church service. Jesus is saying, thus saith the Lord, and Moses, and Exodus, and the parting of the Red Sea, and faithfulness, and repent. You guys hear that noise? Shoveling. Whoa, 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 whoa. And you see a head picked down. Are we in the right spot of the house? Yep, yep, we're right in front of him. Keep digging. And so you just see this hole would have to open up slowly as these guys are digging, because in the ancient world, roofs are made out of mud and tile, so that you just move the tile aside, then you dig, and there is, well, we now have a front row seat. Now, if you're wondering, in the ancient world, um, that may be inappropriate to dig in a house today. In the ancient world, it's really inappropriate to dig through somebody else's house. Like, there's nowhere in the world where on the list of okay things to do is, is it okay if I dig a hole in your roof? That's not acceptable. But throughout Mark's gospel, you're going to see a contrast. Because those who want to hear Jesus are going to be willing to violate social norms. They are going to walk outside the circle of what is allowed, and in doing so, they take great risks. They're just doing something that is inappropriate. They're doing something that will get them in trouble, that will make people look at them with shame. The kind of thing that will follow you around for years. You remember that time you destroyed that guy's roof? Mm -mm -mm. Those young people, that's exactly why we sent the Pharisees to check on it. Honestly, they, they vandalize houses. You can't even let young people use your building. Honestly, they'll just dig holes in the roof. That's why we didn't let them do it in the first place. And here they are. They're willing to violate social rules, but they're also taking a great risk because they could get in trouble. In digging through somebody else's house, you could be arrested, even in the ancient world. You could be fined. You could be asked to pay back even more than the roof of the house for the dishonor of doing it because this is an important event, like crashing a wedding inappropriately when some guy wanders up front when he shouldn't in the wedding and you say, I'm sorry, sir, you don't belong here. But they're taking a lot of risk. Something about what Jesus is teaching is going, if you really want to hear it, involves us willing to step outside of the patterns of the way things have always been done. Jesus consistently resists temptations to do things according to the old norms, to follow the old patterns and to fit into old expectations. And those who are willing to take risks are those who can hear him and find him. Those who want to get to Jesus can't because the old guards stand at the door blocking the entrance. Those who want to hear Jesus can't because there is such an aged population guarding the church because they're careful that error doesn't get in. They're guarding the doors in such a way that the very people Jesus wants to speak to can't hear it. It would be a shame if we lived at a time where young people felt excluded from a church because... The old guard was making sure that nothing went wrong. And so Jesus looks down at this guy laying on the mat. And he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Just what the paralyzed guy wanted to hear. (laughs) He looks down at the guy and declares his sins forgiven. I suspect the four guys carrying their paralyzed friend to Jesus were hoping for something else. <clears throat> Sins. Well, that's good. I mean, I'm, I'm covered. That's all right. You can imagine the look on the guy's face saying, <clears throat> is, that, uh, is that it? <clears throat> I mean, Sins are good. No, I feel good. I feel better on the inside. But seriously, though, the walking thing. 
You see, the paralyzed guy felt that his biggest problem in life was his broken legs. But Jesus in this story tells us that his problem was deeper and more fundamental. And in doing that, Jesus is telling us that there are problems that you have, that God himself sees and cares about, that to you don't seem like that big of a deal. It's a small habit. It's a little bit of a, it's it's something that I've kind of carried around for a few years. It's a little bit of waywardness. It's not that bad. My real problem is my finances. My real problem is this. And what this story tells us is that for God, your sin and finding forgiveness and reconciliation is more important than your comfort. We know in this story that Jesus cares about this guy. And you know because you've read it, you know he, Jesus is going to heal him. That God does care about his needs. But for Jesus, there's a question of priorities. It is, it is this man's paralyzedness that brought him before Jesus. Think about this. If this guy had not been paralyzed, he may not have come to this house on this day. You realize that. That if this guy had not been paralyzed, he may have stayed home on this day and say, tell me about it later. In other words, if it hadn't been for his broken legs, he would not have found forgiveness. Not only does Jesus prioritize forgiveness, but the very brokenness of this man is the place and the reason that he seeks out Jesus. And in order that God may heal him, at times God allows us to experience difficulty in order to draw us back to him. God does not cause our hardships and our suffering. God may allow it for a season in order to prioritize what is most important. Make no mistake, the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years. They get desperately thirsty before water comes. There are prophets who have been desperately hungry before God decides to feed them. The life of the Christian is not blessing after blessing, healing after healing, weekend after weekend of it only gets better from here. It is hardship and questioning and doubt. But through it all, the constantness is that God never walks away or lets go. Amen? God cares about your forgiveness more than you. Because God wants you to be with him forever. God knows that your comfort may actually distract you at times from pursuing God. And God says to this young man, your sins are forgiven. Now I need to tell you here that this is utter blasphemy. Um, This is really bad. You cannot forgive sins. (laughs) And you certainly can't forgive them in your own name. Do you remember that story in Numbers, right? Numbers uh, where Moses is, all the Israelites are complaining about water and God tells to Moses, go and speak to the rock. And Moses goes and he doesn't speak to the rock. He hits the rock and stands in front of it without mentioning God's name. Kind of implying. Moses is implying in that text where he hits the rock and the water comes out. And Moses right beforehand says not, he says, how much longer do we have to put up with you people. We, as in me and God. How much longer do we, Moses and God, partners in crime, have to put up with you guys? God exists in three persons, but four is a crowd. And when Moses declares himself to be just a little bit too much like God, he, for just a moment, says, well, I know it's God working through me, but seriously, he's working through me. And in doing so, God says, you're out. What, 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 what do you mean I'm out? I took down Pharaoh. I parted a sea. I took the, the manna and the stuff and the, one little rock and I'm out? Moses doesn't actually say that. He says, you're right. Moses accepts it because he knows very well what he just did. 
Moses recognized that to do anything in God's name and point to yourself, I did the healing. Come see my healing. My name on the poster gets a little bigger and Jesus' name gets a little smaller and my name gets a little bigger. And then we forgot to put Jesus' name on the poster because nobody mentioned it. I mean, we just make my name bigger and bigger. Then we get two posters just to fit my name. Moses recognized that to draw attention to yourself away from God would be blasphemy because the power has always been God. The authority has always been God. Think about this, right? If, if my son Noah punches my daughter Isabel, bam, and he hits Isabel. And, and then Jonah runs up to Noah and says, Noah, I forgive you for punching Isabel. How is that going to go down? How is that going to go down? Isabel, she's going to say, well, you know, Jonah forgave you, so I guess it's over. No. She's going to say, you don't get to forgive. That's my job, right? I'm the one that was punched, right? You can't forgive somebody else. I can't go up to, and say, listen, um, Pastor Mark, I'm going to go ahead and declare you forgiven for what you, you know, you said some mean things to Meg the other day, so I'm going to declare you um, forgiven on Meg's behalf. Meg's going to say, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> You've got to come to me. If you want forgiveness from me, you have to come to me. You see, the only person who can forgive a sin is the one who was sinned against. Am I right? The only person who can forgive a sin is the one on whom the offense was made. So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and these guys said, mm, <clears throat> don't you mean... According to Yahweh, God has forgiven your sins. And Jesus says, no, no, no. In my name, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is claiming an authority that is unlike anything that has been said before. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? And so he says this. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up and take your mat and walk? But so you know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, so he says to the man on the mat, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And I want you to imagine this scene. Get up and go home. So you know that I have the authority to forgive in my names? You, get up, go home. The whole crowd, quiet. This guy's making his way out. They're looking at the Pharisees. Looking at Jesus, looking at the Pharisees, looking at Jesus. What are they going to say to that? Awkward. They were amazed and praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this before. We didn't teach us this in Sunday school. I'll tell you that right now. This is new material. In this text, we tell us that the old doesn't mix so well with the new. Oh, I put that other. I had a bottle right there. It's gone though. Oh, well. Inside of, uh, there's many cleaners at home. One of them, um, I remember my dad telling me this story that he took some two cleaners at home and he mixed them together. He took the most powerful countertop cleaner he's got, something like Handy Andy, right? And he mixed it with the most powerful other, what's the other great household cleaner if you really want to make it white? Bleach, jick, right? You put a little jick in there, makes anything go white. So he takes the two most powerful cleaners he has, and he's mixing them together, and he's cleaning, and he's cleaning, and he's cleaning, and he starts to feel real bad. There it is. There's the one. So he took something just like this, brought back from the depths of wherever it was taken. 
Somebody probably thought I was cleaning. Um, and so he, he took something like this, and he mixes it with some jick, and he's cleaning, so it's got more of a cream texture to it, and he's cleaning, and he starts to feel a little funny. Um, really funny, actually, like kind of headachey, and um, because what you may not know is that although jick is a powerful cleaner, and Handy Andy is a powerful cleaner, Handy Andy is, contains ammonia. And when you mix ammonia with bleach, it makes two things, hydrochloric acid and chlorine gas. And for those of you not familiar with science, chlorine gas is the weapon, chemical weapon they use in World War I and to this date if they want to poison people. It burns your skin and lungs and all kinds of nasty stuff that you've seen in Marvel movies. Just terrible stuff. Chlorine gas is highly toxic. You see, when you mix one with the other, it's not just that they don't mix like oil and water. It's that the ending result is even more toxic than what you started with. This story will be followed by Jesus saying, you cannot mix the old with the new. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. You can't put a new cloth, a new patch on an old garment. You can't show up at a wedding and say it's like a funeral. You can't mix the old with the new. And he's not just saying they don't go well together. Like most of my color combinations I pick when my wife isn't paying attention. It says they don't go together because the ending result is even more poisonous than the beginning. What Jesus is now saying is he is declaring an era of forgiveness where Jesus is teaching with radical authority. But he recognizes that if you take what Jesus says and try to fit it into the old framework, what you end up with is more than toxic. Let's just think of a couple examples. Suppose, for example, in an old system, you would go to a witch doctor and pay for healing because that's how it's done. It's like a clinic. Um, I mean, you know, culturally, that's just the way it's done. You got to pay a guy a little something. After all, I mean, in all fairness, witch doctors got to eat. Am I right? So he needs to make a little money. He's like the doctor of the thing. And you take a little bit of that. And then you read in James, it says, if you're sick, call the elders of the church to come and anoint you with what? With oil. What if we could just mix those two systems? I'll put oil in a bottle and I'll sell it to you for 20 bucks a piece. I'll mix the two. We'll take a little bit of the old and we'll mix it with a little bit of the new. And people in Harare paid a fortune for little vials of anointing oil. Which drugs dragged the gospel through the mud to be mocked internationally as nothing but hooksters taking advantage of gullible people. Jesus' name is shamed. People are led astray. People say the gospel doesn't work. It's all fake. Jesus doesn't do what he promised. People are skeptical now, increasingly resistant to the gospel. They're no longer listening because they say, I've been to church and I got cheated and my aunt got cheated and so-and-so got cheated and it didn't work. The end result is not just bad, it's toxic. You can't mix the old with the new. If you take the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, but match it on to a culture that tells you to go and do whatever you want. If you've got money, you deserve to make your house bigger. You deserve to make your family larger. You can do what you want with impunity. If you take that culture and try to slap grace onto it, it's even worse than when you started. Because at least traditional culture had some boundaries to it that would eventually draw a line. But you throw grace in there and suddenly guys can do whatever they want and then afterwards say, But I know I'm forgiven. Jesus forgives me, why don't you forgive me? They can take the old. You see, grace 
A community of grace that is not pursuing the shape of Jesus is even more toxic than what you started with. You would have been better to not hear it at all than misapply grace outside of the context of Jesus. You would have been better to not hear about the power of Jesus than mix it with hucksters who want to sell it. You can't mix old thinking with new thinking. You can't mix a little bit of the old in with the new. You can't say it's only got a little bit of strychnine in it. The rest of it is Mazoe gospel because a little bit of strychnine in Mazoe gospel is even more dangerous than poison by itself because at least when it was poison you could recognize it jesus says you can't mix the old with the new he looks down at this man and says your sins are forgiven but i want us to think about this phrase for a second jesus says at this point in mark's gospel which is going to be harder to say your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk Now, the crowd, of course, answers. I mean, it would be a lot harder to tell the man to take up his mat and walk. But is that the harder thing to say? In this text, we have the first shadow of the gospel. As commentators of old have said, this text starts the shadow of the cross in Mark's gospel. Because those of us who know where this story goes, it is a lot harder to say your sins are forgiven. What God will have to do in order to declare your sins forgiven takes a lot more than to get up your mat and walk. And what Mark is telling us already is which is harder to say. It is hard to say, but God is willing to do it. As our musicians come forward today, I want us to think about this quote from, if you've done your reading this week, it was on the top of page five. It was on the baptism of Jesus. And in doing so, I want want us just to look at that. If you don't have the book with you, it's okay. It says this. In a sense, this is what the gospel is. It's God looks at you and says, my dear, dear child, I am delighted in you. Do you remember reading that this week? He says, in a sense, the gospel message is the message we have when Jesus is baptized and looks down and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, is the message for all of us. And and the writer here encourages us to think through that. And that's what I want us to do just for a second before we sing. If you would just play a little bit to Fadzwa. I want you to say, just whisper it under your breath. I want you to hear God saying to you, you are my dear, dear child in whom I am delighted. Could you say that under your breath to yourself right now? Hear God saying it. I am his dear, dear child and he is delighted in me. Let's say it again. I am his dear, dear child. He is delighted in me. I know your mind is going to want to say, but what about, and just say again now under your breath, I am his dear, dear child. He is delighted in me. And I know you've had doubts and difficulties and things you're wishing would work out. But we've got to say again under our breath, I am his dear, dear child. He is delighted in me. I know you've had moments where you're skeptical about parts of church and you're just wondering if this is all worth it. But I want you to say again under your breath the message of the gospel. I am his dear, dear child. He is delighted in me. I know you're worried about things that have happened before. Commitments you've made that didn't follow through. Sins that continue to hold on. But we hear the words of the gospel again. I am his dear, dear child. He is delighted in me. I am his dear, dear child. And he is delighted in me. Which is harder to say? 
Take up your mat and walk or your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven was impossibly difficult to say. But as we move toward communion, we know that it was a cost he was willing to pay because you are his child. And despite all that has gone wrong, he is delighted in you. So for all of those who call on the name of Jesus, may we remember once again the great power of the gospel is not just that he offers us forgiveness, but he offers us forgiveness so that we can walk with him. Would you come during this next song and take communion, take the bread which represents his body and the cup which represents his blood. But if you have never felt that gift of baptism, if you have never heard the voice of a father saying, I am pleased with you, this is the time to come forward. Because you are his dear, dear child. And he is delighted. Amen.